Councilmember Larry Gossett served on the King County Council from 1993 to 2019. He was an active member of the Black Panther Party Seattle chapter, co-founded the University of Washington Black Student Union, and helped start numerous other black student unions at colleges throughout the state. Listen to the transformational experience that changed his course in life. As I understand, you went to Harlem in your younger years. And tell me how you got there and how that was um, a transformational experience for you. In 1966, I was a student at the University of Washington. And at that time, the Vietnam War was roaring and growing. And we had what was called a draft. And on many, many college campuses, males were very concerned about what number they would get when there was an arbitrary draft to figure out how to uh, bring young men into these services. When my number was pulled, I was uh, number 32 out of 365 days. So that meant that I would be called early on to go to Vietnam, even though I was a college student and before we had gotten exemptions. So I started looking around. I would, did not want to go uh, and fight any Vietnamese people. They were not my enemy. They never called me the N-word. I was not going to go. I did not want to run to Canada, though, and I didn't want to visit at that time uh, the federal prisons. So I found that you could get a... a you can, an alternative to service in Vietnam was joining the United States Peace Corps or the Domestic Peace Corps, which had started in 1964, called VISTA, Volunteers in Service to America. I applied to become a VISTA volunteer. I was lucky you called that they got excited about having a college student from the University of Washington join and I got accepted. I was sent to Toledo, Ohio for training in March of 1966. And then in June of 66, I was sent to New York City, Central Harlem to work for Harlem Youth Incorporated. That one year experience, uh, you call, ended up being the signature experience of my life. Why do I say that? Because the poverty, the racism that I got exposed to in Harlem was much more glaring and easy to see and difficult to avoid than the fact that I was coming out of an all black community in Seattle called the Central Area. In the Central Area, I lived on 18th and Alder. And from 18th and 19th and Alder, there are about uh, nine or eight ghetto houses on each side of the street with a total population of about 212 people on the entire block. When I went to Central Harlem, I lived on 117th and Lenox. And the first thing we had to do the first three or four weeks I was in Vista in New York City was to do a survey just of the block that we lived on. We found that there were I hope you believe this, that there were 9,118 people that lived on that block. And that of that 9,000 plus people, 1,500 of them were 12 or under. The target population that the Harlem Youth Vista volunteers were supposed to work with. 
I mean, at first I had gotten excited. I said, oh, I just got to work with youth on one block. But I got scared, nervous, and anything else you can think of when I found out there's 1,500 kids that met that criteria when I first got there. And then, you know, we set up a little program, maybe 100 kids got involved. But the main thing about being a VISTA volunteer for one year is that three weeks after I got there, Stokely Carmichael in Mississippi articulated a new concept in the civil rights movement at that time. And he said that what we need to do is start fighting for Black power. And the concept of Black power, once he articulated that during my second week in VISTA, went through Harlem like wildfire. And I think that's an appropriate term because everybody in Harlem, particularly in social service programs like the one I worked with, started saying Black people got to have power. And in Harlem, we should have more power than anybody because we have 550,000 people concentrated in a very narrow piece of space and we don't own anything here. The stores, we don't determine the destinies of our children's education. Half of us live at or below the poverty line in New York. And it was just glaring and it was bad. We went from apartment to apartment on 117th Street. And I was amazed there would be six, seven, eight, nine people living in two bedroom units. The big ghetto houses in Seattle, I got five younger brothers and sisters myself, but we had four bedrooms, a living room, a dining room, a kitchen. You know, it wasn't real small. Every family lived in a very small space. I'd have gone crazy in some of these spaces that they were living in. And I said early on, no human beings should have to live like this. And in every household, there were little kids, there were adults, and in many, there were grandparents, most of whom had migrated from the South in the 30s, 40s, or 50s, looking for a better life for themselves and their families. Secondly, the 565,000 people in Harlem that I read about was similar to the population of the entirety of Seattle, Washington, in 1966-67, there was about 600,000 people in Seattle at that time. I know there's over 7,000 now, but then it was almost 600,000. In Seattle, I knew, because I had been to high school just a few years ago, that there were 14 high schools and two Catholic schools, uh, more than two, Holy Names, O'Day, Blanchett, you know, okay. But in Harlem, this is the truth, there was only one public high school for the 565,000 people. It was Franklin High School. Paradoxically, I had gone to Franklin High School in Seattle. It had the same name. That's why I can remember it so easily. And uh, I read an article in the paper, and it said that 70% of all the entire population of Harlem, 70% of its kids drop out of school in the ninth grade. Then we had sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth as junior high, and high school didn't start to 10. So, and I thought that was horrible, but I didn't understand that logically there was no high school for the overwhelming majority of the kids in Harlem to attend. They would have to be, we used busing, but they would have to take the subway to another high school to find one. There were, there were hundreds of high schools in New York City, but only one 
in Harlem. And that was for Central Harlem and East Harlem, where a lot of Puerto Ricans lived at that time. So that was a horrible situation that the school board, the city fathers, nobody should allow to have one high school and a 70% dropout rate for its kids. Thirdly, the housing was very dilapidated and the overwhelming majority of the families would talk to me about absentee landlords. They send people to pick up the rent, but they never sent anybody to fix the toilet. They never sent anybody to fix the heat. So the conditions were so glaringly unfair to the population. Harlem was then the highest concentration of people of African descent in any small space in the world community. Here's what I mean by that. The black population of Harlem went, ran from 110th Street to 155th Street. It was 45 blocks long. Yuko, it was only seven blocks wide. And in that little space, they had 550,000 people. I already told you just the one block. One block I lived on had 9,000 people living on it. There's no similarly sized community in the world. And by that, I mean nowhere in Africa, nowhere in South Africa or Nigeria. Could you come to a space that small and have that many people of African descent residing there? That only existed in Harlem. And that had an impact on me. And it was extremely poor, extremely uh, exploited, and not thought about in terms of its basic human rights in a democratic society that it ought to have. Fourth, I would go up on 125th Street and all the stores, because I had to go there to get my groceries. 125th Street, every store was owned by whites. Very few of the stores was owned by blacks, except for maybe the beauty shops and the barber shops. You know, and I was a college student and, and I was a reader and I used to spend a lot of time at the Mushu bookstore on 125th Street, the only black bookstore in Harlem. There wasn't one class that dealt with African-American history at the University of Washington. When I was a sophomore in 65 and a junior in 66, when I dropped out to go to Vista, never had I had any black history. It all came from reading about black history. Once I got to Harlem and going to the Mishu bookstore, I'm gratified that the staff at the Mishu bookstore, because I was so into coming there regularly and, and interested in black history. And I was, they knew I was from the West Coast. They also got me to read about other than just black historians or black activists or black revolutionaries. They said, you should read about what's happening in, in Cuba. You should read about this thing, socialism or democratic socialism. You shouldn't have the man thinking you're scared of all that. So I read the Communist Manifesto, not as a freshman in economics at the University of Washington, but as a VISTA volunteer in Harlem. And I was scared when the guy said, you need to read the Communist Manifesto. I said, oh, I'm scared of that. And he asked me why. I couldn't answer him. But my brain, like most other brains in the United States, was brainwashed that, oh, Communist is ugly and bad. So he had me read it. And then he talked to me about it. And I concluded that the Communist Manifesto wasn't bad. It made some sense, particularly when he also had me to garner a deeper appreciation on how capitalism worked and that slavery is a product of the capitalist economic system where they needed workers very cheap 
to make as much money as they could. They could so these Britons that came over here for a better way of life could get rich at the expense of we Blacks. And they thought nothing had taken all the land from the native populations that was already here. I never talked about any of this stuff until I got to Harlem. So that's how you can see they had such a profound impact on me. So this experience of being in Vista essentially turned me into a revolutionary, a very strong Black power advocate, and had me change my life priorities to there was nothing more I wanted to do but be involved in the Black liberation struggle, to be involved in the struggle to make the situation of Black people in this country better. And I always had the intention after doing one year of returning to my home community, which I did after 15 months in New York. I returned to Seattle in September of 1967. That's when I landed in Seattle, Washington. I had physically changed so much. I I already have articulated a little bit about my political uh, and value changes. But physically, I changed so much that my mother and my youngest brother, Patrick, came to pick me up and they came up to the gate. And I got there before they arrived. I was waiting for them. When they came up, they both walked right by me. They had no idea who that Negro was, Yuko, until I said, Mama, this is me. You know, and she recognized my voice, turned around. She saw a young man with a dark shades on because I, I, I already was wearing glasses, but I'd got prescription glasses that were dark shades, if you will. I could see out of my shades because I wore them all the time as was the symbolic act of a lot of Black Power advocates. We adopted uh, you know, sunglasses and shades and we all had big natural, so I had a big natural. Um, many, many, many of us, particularly in Harlem, started dressing in African clothing and we changed our name. Even when I go to New York City today, I contact two friends that I got in 66 and they're still alive and they call me Abba. They don't have any idea who Larry Gossett is because my name, I changed my name from Larry Gossett to Abba Yoruba all while I was in uh, Vista and many of the other youth organizers and activists in Harlem adopted African names and got involved. And of course, our premier leader and teacher and inspiration was Malcolm X who had died in Harlem just 15 months before I arrived, February 21st, 1965, he was brutally murdered in Harlem. But his impact and his uh, example and his modeling of what Black people, particularly Black youth who were in the movement ought to be about was still heavily there. And so I read the autobiography of Malcolm X when I got in the Vista and I carried a copy of Malcolm X Speaks as did many, many other young people in the community. Suffice it to say, when I got back to Seattle, I was looking for ways to get involved in the Black Power movement in my city. And I found that Stokely Carmack had come to Seattle in April of 67, had a profound impact, stayed an extra day, started a chapter of SNCC. And I joined in about September 20th, 
1967, I went to my first meeting of Seattle SNCC, and that was the start of my movement activities in my hometown. You're listening to a KBCS interview with former King County Council member and activist Larry Gossett. To listen to more of our local stories, you can visit kbcs.fm or subscribe to our podcast at SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and Spotify. This is The Grit on 91.3 KBCS. We take you back to my interview with former King County Council member Larry Gossett. He starts this next excerpt of the interview by describing Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s visit to Seattle in the early 1960s. 91.3 KBCS Community Radio, I'm Yuko Kadama. Martin Luther King came to speak at Garfield. It was November 8th or 9th, 1961. I was a sophomore at Garfield. I heard him speak. Garfield was the only high school in Washington State at that time that had over 50% Black population. It was 65% Black students at Garfield in 1961, okay? Uh, I'd gone to Washington with about half the kids at Garfield at that time. And I'd gone to Horace Mann with about one eighth of all the students in Garfield at that time. So I was, you know, these are all my homies that, that were at Garfield with me. Martin Luther King told us that he had been invited to Seattle by the Reverend Dr. Samuel Barry McKinney, pastor at Mount Zion Baptist Church, who had gone to Morehouse College in Atlanta with him. And because of that relationship, he was able to get him to come out of here. Why? Because Reverend McKinney, the various community councils in the central area wanted to create an open housing movement in Seattle, Washington. Oh my God, whoever heard of something like that in lovely Seattle, but it was needed because here's what Martin Luther King told us. He said, students, the reason I'm here is that I found out that in Seattle, Seattle, Washington is now the fifth most segregated city in all of the land the entire country, because 88% of the entire Black population lives in uh, the central area of Seattle. And that's not fair that everybody who's Black has to live in the same area and that they're the poorest in the city and they have the, the most dilapidated and oldest housing and that these schools that you all are attending need to be improved, need to be integrated, and and people have to have a choice about where they're able to live, and people have to have a choice about what occurs in the schools in which their children attend. And I I found out that about 40% of all the people that live in the central area live out of below the poverty line. Why does all the poor have to be concentrated in the same community. We had never had anybody talk to us like that. And that's why no auditorium downtown would allow Martin Luther King to speak in 61. First Baptist Church, a white church that held 1,500 congregants every Sunday, at first said yes to Reverend Samuel B. McKinney, a Mount Zion Baptist Church pastor, who invited Martin, said you can meet here. Because at that time, Mount Zion only held 
286 people. We needed a church bigger than that uh, to help uh, Martin Luther King speak at. And then before he arrived, so much pressure was put upon the pastor of uh, First Baptist that he had to call Reverend McKinney and say, oh, that Negro Martin Luther King can't speak here because my constituents, my congregants are scared to have him speak here. You know, because he's, I don't know, he's a radical. Uh, and that was the attitude toward Martin at that time in Seattle, Washington. So he ended up only speaking at Garfield and at the Jewish church came through. Temple de Hirsch on 15th and Union was the only church that ended up being willing to allow, because they saw Martin as a, as a freedom fighter, as a liberator, as, as one who was against the oppression and disadvantagement of all people, not just black people. That's how the rabbi at that particular church saw Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and allowed him to speak there, and over a thousand people came there. So the housing situation, the poor education, the extreme racial segregation that existed in this country, and the fact that all, all the downtown stores, Bon Marche, Frederick and Nelson, Woolworths, none of them had any Blacks that worked as clerks in any of those stores, just like the situation had been in Montgomery and uh, Birmingham and other places in the South. And racial discrimination and employment existed in Seattle, Washington. Those are the kind of issues that ended up concerning me after I got back. But what I did, because I was still a college student, is uh, participate with just 12 other Black students in January of 1968, 13 of us stood in front of the hub, the student union building at the UW, and said that the Black Student Union is going to exist on this campus and we're gonna combat and fight against institutionalized racism as it manifests itself on this campus. And the white students had never heard their Negro students talk like that because they saw us as Negroes still then. And we said we are Black, because Stokely Carmichael had come in 67 and taught the Black youth in particular uh, of Seattle that Black is beautiful. And we began to think about that. And a few of us had gone to a Black youth conference in Los Angeles around Thanksgiving week in 67. And that's where we came, found out about the existence of Black student unions. It was at that conference, Yuko, that we found out about the existence of the Black Panther Party because we had about 30 of them came to that same West Coast Black Youth Conference uh, that was held and sponsored by SNCC and other Black power groups in Los Angeles, Thanksgiving weekend, 1967. And 33 of us got on a bus in Seattle, a Greyhound bus, and uh, zoomed down there uh, to attend. And that's where we found out about the Black Student Union. And, uh, all the leaders of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee were there, and the Black Panther Party from Oakland that we had never heard of attended that conference. And we were most particularly impacted by the Black Student Union spokespersons that were there, and they taught us how to organize BSUs on college and high school campuses, as they had been for two years in California. And that's why we went back to the University of Washington in the first week of January 68 when we got back into school, organized the first Black Student Union 
and the history of Washington State was organized on the campus. And then we said, we're gonna analyze the situation of race on our campus. And then we'll be coming forward in a few months with specific recommendations for change, which we thought would benefit all people, but it would certainly allow black people on this campus to have more power and influence. And we were going to be willing to use any means necessary. That was That's one of the most popular concepts uh, popularized originally by Malcolm X that black students all over this country adopted beginning in the late 60s. So we started working on changing. The first thing we did, Yuko, is we didn't go downstairs and register as a new student group because we said that we're black people. White people generally don't recognize us as existing anyway. So why were we gonna go down? No, we just gonna tell them we exist. So we had a rally in front of the student unions and we never went downstairs and filled out any papers, which student groups are supposed to do. At least that first year, we didn't do it. I think we started doing it uh, later years. Everything we were doing, Black people have a right to have the power to determine their own destinies. That's what we were trying to do on that campus. This is The Grit on 91.3 KBCS Music and Ideas. I'm Yuko Kodama. You're listening to a KBCS interview with former King County Council member and Black activist Larry Gossett. In the next segment of The Grit, you'll listen to Councilmember Gossett's perspective on the outcome of the January 6th mob attack on our country's Capitol building. Now, do you feel like most people in our country, do you feel that they really understand the harmful effects of race and racism, the depth of the harm that it causes. Do you feel like people really understand that today? No. No, how could they? I mean, we would uh, look at what happened on January 6th. All these thousands of whites based on a conservative president month after month after month saying they're gonna steal the election from me, the Democrats, and particularly those Blacks. And then after November 3rd, saying they stole the election from me, stop the steal, we gotta fight. And readily thousands and thousands of people uh, without any existence of facts, that complete absence of facts, believed that the election was stolen from him. And he did it mostly by saying, and it's something that conservative and authoritarian figures in America have always done. He started during the election counting week, November 4th through November 7th, constantly telling people, watch the vote from the South, watch the votes in Michigan, wash the boats in Pennsylvania, wash the boats in Minnesota, wash the boats in Arizona. And then when he, they would say what boats to watch, they said, look at the black boat coming out of Detroit. They're just lining up and they even count the, the people that are dead. 
And then when he starts talking about Pennsylvania, he emphasized Philadelphia, the north and west sides of Philadelphia. Trump and his supporters actually used those examples as places where most likely the votes were cheated and dropped illegally. And then when he talked about Georgia, he said, oh, my God, they know that the majority of Georgians didn't vote for Trump. Focus on that Fulton County where Atlanta is with those hundreds of thousands of blacks. They have to have done something wrong for us to keep. And by reinforcing race subtly in all these states, it was easy for a predominant white population that has always been able to comfortably exist, even if they weren't doing very well, knowing that Blacks had no respect as human beings, didn't need to be respected, had no power influence, and did not have to be competed against. And then you have a leader to start saying, they are the problem as usual, and we must fight. The racism makes it easier for many, many whites in our society to believe that any effort toward racial justice is not really called for because they're lazy and don't want to really educate themselves. They haven't earned the right to be uh, treated the way that they say that they want to be treated or not being treated. It is still too easy for most whites to believe that structural racism, racial bias, uh, does not exist in a significant manner in this country anymore. And because of that belief, it makes it much more difficult to bring about a truly and more genuinely democratic experience for all people in our country. Yeah, it's still hard. Thank you. I also want to get into the question of you know, let's go to January 6th and yes. the mob attack. Now you have seen the black movement from Martin Luther King and Malcolm X yes. to now you've been a part of the Black Panther Party Seattle chapter yes. and have been yes. watching. And, you know, these are your brothers and sisters that were right. getting murdered by the uh, federal agents in Chicago and LA and Seattle. So, Larry Ward in Seattle, 70, yeah. over there in front of Hard Castles. That was a complete setup by the uh, state and federal government. Talk about how you see how authorities have dealt with the January 6th in investigation and follow-up, and also how the Black community has been challenged in terms of investigations by federal agents in the past. Talk a little bit about maybe the similarities and differences of what you're seeing with the treatment well, of people. Thank you very much, Yuko. One of the uh, interesting analogies that are developing after the uh, January 6th insurrection led primarily by very conservative white groups like you know, the Proud Boys and white nationalist groups and so-called conservative Republicans marching on the United States Congress to stop the certification of the 46th president and vice president of the United States of America, the legitimate victory of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris 
it's really interesting to look at how the protagonists in, in that regard are treated compared to the protagonists in the Black Power movement, particularly those radicals from Black Power organizations and uh, like the Black Panther Party or the Black Student Union. In 2006, our president, the counting of the uh, congressional vote, and when they ruled on whether or not sufficient enough case was made to find Donald J. Trump guilty of starting an insurrection uh, movement against the Congress on the day of January 6th. What has been interesting to me is that the preparation, if that had been a Black Lives Matter march where the president started talking about those Blacks are moving on our capital on January 6th, if he had known about it in May, whether, I can't remember the day and earlier last year that he started saying that the vote, if I lose, is going to be unfair. It's going to be a stolen election because there's no way I could lose, y'all. No way. And he started preparing Republicans and conservative uh, fringe groups and white supremacist organizations for a fight by saying, I'm going to lose. And then when he did lose, he particularized the main villains being African-Americans and Mexicans and Maricopa County, Arizona, and Blacks in Philadelphia, Detroit, uh, Atlanta, Georgia. It did get many white conservatives that had voted for Trump. Biden got 81 million. Trump got 74 million. He won by about 7 million votes, as I understand it. Yet Trump was able to convince millions of people that the election had been stolen from him. And he used the uh, formidable methods that have historically been used that the real problem is that the liberal left Democrats are too beholden to those cheating, criminally inclined Blacks that are willing to be violent and do anything necessary to keep good people like me from being the president. Therefore, there was not adequate preparation done to prevent the takeover of our Congress on the 6th because the president and the Justice Department said, oh, it's going to be all right. These are mostly whites coming to just protest peacefully their support of Donald J. Trump. Had that been a Black Lives Matter movement coming in, I would submit to you and our listening audience that there would have been 20, 25,000 troops, mostly National Guardsmen at least, and the United States Army would have been backed up and ready to come in if necessary. Had they thought that it was going to be mostly Blacks challenging the 2020 presidential election on January 6th. But since it wasn't, they only had uh, city police and Capitol police there. And Donald Trump and his minions coached by him for about four months saying the election was stolen. And the truth is in the states of Arizona, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, and a few other states that, that are critical. These battleground states were all won by me in 2016, but 2020, because of they allowed Blacks to illegally vote, they even voted their dead relatives and stuff, 
then I was stolen. It was easy for people to believe that I pretend to you, you call, because of the way racism works in our society. Now compare that to people getting upset about the urban rebellions that took place in big cities in America, starting in Watson the summer of 65 and in Detroit and the summer of 67 in Newark, the summer of 67, and then 100 cities on April 4th, 1968, including Seattle, Washington, when Martin Luther King was brutally assassinated as the prince of nonviolence and bringing everybody in our country together, they're gonna kill him. The oppressed masses in the African-American community in particular rebelled very seriously. The people arrested in those places, nobody got upset about them getting arrested. The people killed, it was 25 or something like that killed and, and Watts and maybe 32 or 33 killed in Detroit and thousands arrested. And when they were put in jail, their bills were very high where they couldn't get out. Witness what we've been hearing reported has happened to the two or 300 people, I think it's close to 300 now, that have been arrested around the January 6th insurrection against the United States government where they wanted to decertify a legitimate presidential election. Over two thirds of these people were let out on their own personal recognizance. One lady I heard was allowed to go to Mexico for a vacation she had been planning for a while. I can only, I can talk most specifically about me. The first black power case that I was arrested in was the Franklin City in 1968. On the same day Martin Luther King was killed, I was arrested. Aaron Dixon was arrested. Carl Miller was arrested. Four students, Aaron's little brother, Elmer, and then Clifton uh, Wyatt and, and Trollis Flavors and Ricky Gossett, my little brother. They were arrested, anybody they could find. We were all arrested. And uh, when we went to trial, the judge gave us the maximum for a misdemeanor. What was the issue? At Franklin, the, the principal on the same day kicked out the leaders of the Black Student Union for having a fight with some white kids and two girls for wearing their hair natural. With the two girls, he sent a note home saying they can no longer return to Franklin High School until their hair looks ladylike. He wanted them to grab a hot comb and straighten their hair rather than wearing it in a beautiful natural state. That was crazy. But yet they put us in jail for try, trying to get these kids back in school. And we got them back in school. But then five days after the sit-in, on the same day that Martin Luther King was killed, they arrested us that morning, put us in the King County Jail and the King County Youth Detention Center. And when Aaron and Elmer and I went to jail a couple months and was tried a couple of months later, they gave us the highest sentence of any activists in the whole country that had gone to jail for unlawful assembly. We got six months and $1,500 bail, yet they let all these people out. And I don't know what's gonna happen when they go to court. And when we point out contradictions like that, inadequate preparation because it was white radicals rather than black and brown radicals, 
I wish we could get more Americans to think about what we mean by that. And then when we do put them on trial for what they did, it'd be interesting to see what comes out. And if people, more people could see these contradictions, maybe we could finally build the most exemplary democracy that the world's ever seen. I know many Americans already think that the United States is that, but you will not find very many people of color. Look, the Japanese, we go to war against the Japanese nation after December 7, 1941. They were lining up every Japanese citizen on the West Coast of the United States and say, y'all gotta go to concentration camps because we're fighting against the Japanese. Franklin Roosevelt was reminding us that we're also at war against the country of Italy uh, and the country of Germany, the Nazis in Germany. I never heard anybody talk about putting Italian or German Americans in jail because we're fighting against their country. Racism in our society has got to go. And it's not until we get more people to see and appreciate the kinds of things you and I doing this great month of Black history in Seattle, Washington are discussing on this afternoon. That was former King County Council member Larry Gossett speaking with me last week about the experiences that shaped his activism and approach to public service. Check out this interview and more local stories on kbcs.fm or subscribe to our podcast at Stitcher, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify.